Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, July 20th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Scott Wallace with today's top headlines. Putin bails on the BRICS summit with his arrest warrant in play. U.S. Democrats pursue Supreme Court ethics legislation. An IRS whistleblower testifies about Hunter Biden. The IMF cites exceptionally high economic risk in Pakistan. Biden shows a slight polling edge for 2024. Israeli airstrikes in Damascus injure two Syrian soldiers. Michigan presses charges over an alleged 2020 fake elector scheme. Hollywood strikers say NBC Universal blocked their picket area. Thousands of writers rail against AI. And more than 1,300 experts pen an AI no-threat letter. Our top story, Vladimir Putin won't attend the BRICS summit. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Jerusalem Post, Al Jazeera, the presidency of the Republic of South Africa, and the South China Morning Post. Russian President Putin will not attend the summit of BRICS countries next month, a statement from the presidency of host country South Africa confirmed on Wednesday. Putin will instead be represented by his top diplomat, Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, the statement from South Africa said, with the decision reportedly coming via mutual agreement between the two countries. The announcement came amid questions over whether South Africa, a member of the International Criminal Court, would execute an ICC arrest warrant for Putin over allegations he unlawfully deported Ukrainian children to Russia. Russia argues that in cases where Ukrainian children were moved without a guardian's consent, it was done temporarily for their own safety and within the bounds of international law. On Tuesday, in response to a legal case brought by South Africa's main opposition party seeking to enforce the arrest warrant if Putin attends the summit, Court papers released on behalf of South African President Cyril Ramaphosa said Russia has made it clear that arresting its sitting president would be a declaration of war. Ramaphosa's affidavit further described the move from the Democratic Alliance Party as irresponsible, alleging that the country's national security was at stake. It added that Putin's arrest would also undermine a South African-led mission to end the war in Ukraine and foreclose any peaceful solution to the war. Meanwhile, Putin will still attend the summit on Wednesday via video call, according to Russian news reports. The leaders of the remaining BRICS countries, namely Brazil, India, and China, are expected to attend in person. Thank you, Scott. On this show, we like to separate the facts from the narrative spin. Scott just laid out the facts for that story. I'm going to start our first round of narrative spins with an establishment critical narrative provided by Al Jazeera. Arresting Putin would jeopardize South Africa's decades-long relationship with Russia, and this would in turn threaten South Africa's peace, security, and prosperity. Arresting a head of state who ought to enjoy diplomatic immunity is both irresponsible and reckless. And Eyewitness News of South Africa brings us the pro-establishment narrative. The arguments put forward by Cyril Ramaphosa are both farcical and inconsistent. He argues that South Africa ought to respect the sovereignty of Russia. Meanwhile, Russia is ignoring the sovereignty of Ukraine by waging an illegal invasion. And occasionally we get nerd narratives from our friends at the Metaculous Prediction community. We have one here that says there's a 1% chance that Russia will be removed from the UN Security Council by 2024. 
I wonder if diplomatic immunity is as cool and as far-reaching as we're led to believe by movies and TV shows and stuff. Yeah, my only encounter with diplomatic immunity, or at least the one that really sticks in my head, is, what was it, Lethal Weapon 3 or 2? At the end, he's like screaming, diplomatic immunity, ha, 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 and you can't be killed or anything. Like, yeah. Basically, you can go around and rob banks and go, ha, 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 diplomatic immunity. I mean, that's what we're told. Something tells me that, uh, you know, it's not it's not all it's cracked up to be. I wouldn't mind trying it. I, I, I would sell, um, you know, if a country's trying to make some money on the side. I would like sell a diplomatic immunity for a day pass and just, uh, you know, like, all right, it's 1500 bucks. You got diplomatic immunity for a day and we only sell like 50 of them so that like, it's not everyone can't have it, but like one per state or something. You got to make them a little more uh, attractive, make it maybe like combine it with like a fast pass to Disneyland. Oh, right, right. Yeah. You get 20% off in the gift shop and And you 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 can can jump to the, jump to to skip the lines and you get diplomatic immunity. I mean, if I have diplomatic immunity, I'm skipping the line at Space Mountain. Believe me. Diplomatic immunity. Senate Democrats push an ethics code for the Supreme Court. Here are the facts as agreed upon by National Review, NBC, and Reuters. The Democrat-controlled Senate Judiciary Committee is sent to debate and vote on Senator Sheldon Whitehouse's, the Democrat from Rhode Island, his proposed law that would impose a binding ethics code and new financial disclosure and case recusal requirements on the U.S. Supreme Court. Thursday's vote comes over a week after White House and Judiciary Committee Chairman Dick Durbin, the Democrat from Illinois, announced a bill that would give the court 180 days to adopt a code of conduct and allow a panel of lower court judges to review public ethics complaints. The push of Democratic lawyers for a binding ethics code comes as conservative justices have been criticized for not disclosing travel and lodging accommodations they have received from wealthy acquaintances, which Democrats say could pose a conflict of interest. While the nine Supreme Court justices aren't subject to a binding code of conduct, they are subject to the same disclosure laws that most high-level officials are. They must report outside income and certain gifts, but food and, quote, personal hospitality are exempted. The bill, called the Supreme Court Ethics Recusal and Transparency Act, has 25 Democratic co-sponsors, but is unlikely to pass the Republican-majority House. Critics say it's a tactic to disqualify justices from cases and restructure the court without resorting to the extreme of court packing. While Democrats say the Supreme Court justices should be held to the same standard as other federal judges, Republicans argue that the court must remain independent from the other branches of government and say Democrats are attacking the court due to its conservative skew and voting record. All right, thanks, Adam. The Brennan Center brings us the Democratic narrative. Not only does Congress have the authority to regulate Supreme Court ethics, but it also must ensure that justice is not perverted by a rogue court whose justices have a clear proclivity for corruption. Multiple reports have revealed a long list of gifts and accommodations given to conservative justices by right-wing billionaires, yet there's no rule demanding the justices disclose these potential conflicts of interest. 
the Supreme Court's integrity is at an all-time low as radical conservatives erode the rights of women and people of color, which is why we need this law. And a Republican narrative is going to follow that up, written by The Daily Signal. Democrats have been trying to delegitimize the Supreme Court ever since Donald Trump nominated his first justice. And the liberal establishment even incited abuse and attacks on justices and their families. The corporate media has been trying to gin up controversy about conservative justices going on trips with wealthy friends to sway public opinion and allow their leftist friends to impose new laws to diminish the court's power. This is a political game, and the Democrats are desperate for revenge against a court that dares to rule against the left's woke social agenda. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives brought to us by the Metaculous Prediction community. This time, they say there's a 28% chance there will be fewer than six conservative Supreme Court justices on January 20th, 2025. Man, you want to get this nipped in the bud, you don't want to have a rogue court. That can just that can get ugly. Go go on. You know you get you get characters in there like the Penguin and the Riddler and the Joker. You know a rogue court can just oh, yeah get out a of rogues gallery. Yeah, especially if they oh, start oh, painting rogues. and it's a rogues gallery. Oh, That's a, a rogues real gallery. Problem. That's yeah. what I'm thinking of. I got the two confused. I'm sorry well, about that. My dad was a, is a professional guitar player, and he for a while, I don't know if he toured or just played a few gigs supporting Frank Gorshin. The original Riddler, the the TV Riddler, oh, and yeah, uh, yeah. he had a whole. You know, he was kind of more of a, he was kind of a song and dance. He was a performer, really. He was like was a your, song and dance. Was your dad man. like the in the like the with the in the music crew or he, like the I, op- I think he was playing act? guitar. I, I'm not. I'm. I don't know for. I mean, this was. I mean, I think Frank Gorshin died like 30 years ago. But so this was a while back. It, it was already old lore in my family when i first heard about it a million years ago Uh i'd have to ask him what the deal is but i do know and i don't know why you'd make up frank gorshin as the guy that you were supporting oh Um, yeah me and frank used to tour the catskills yeah i I think it really was like upper new england like vermont new hampshire that area you know (laughs) i think frank would play you know dinner theater you know he was like he was like a song and dance man it was kind of of a bygone era like it was just he was just an entertainer you know i guess the closest thing nowadays would be like what jimmy fallon is he kind of like does stuff. I don't know what the relationship was, but I can uh-huh. tell you on good authority, he was in support of Frank Gorshin during, you know, Frank Gorshin the later years. Oh, so this is post Batman. So he would have been like, I, in I the would 70s think so. Acting, yeah. You know, like it, disco songs. Hit the road and, and tell a few stories and tell some jokes and do a yeah. couple dances and, you know, old song, you know, the, you know, your, the, your the dad old, would play like style. a Spanish flamingo and Frank would do like a dance. Yeah, Mr. Gorshin, if you please. Oh, excuse me, excuse me. Thank you. News from the Hunter Biden probe, IRS whistleblowers testify before the House. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC News, Washington Post, The Hill, and the Associated Press. Two IRS whistleblowers, Gary Shapley, an agent in the IRS's Criminal Investigation Division, and Joseph Ziegler, who works in the International Tax and Financial Crime Section, testified on Wednesday before the House Oversight Committee about alleged meddling in the Justice Department's investigation into President Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden. The pair accused the DOJ of slow-walking investigative steps into Hunter Biden, claiming it delayed taking any action in the months before Joe Biden's 2020 win, 
with Shapley alleging Delaware U.S. Attorney David Weiss, who led the investigation, was denied a request to pursue a tax case out of the state. This comes after U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland previously testified that he told Weiss he could obtain a special status to pursue the case outside of Delaware if he wanted. While Shapley contradicted this, he also stated that he has never claimed Garland knowingly lied to Congress. In his prepared statement, Ziegler said he had a reason to believe that the DOJ committed gross mismanagement, a gross waste of funds relating to the tax dollars spent on investigating this case, and that both the DOJ and IRS committed an abuse of authority. Shapley also claimed a U.S. attorney reached out to Hunter's lawyers before the IRS was to execute a search warrant on his storage unit. While this isn't unusual for high-profile suspects, Shapley alleged it possibly interfered with evidence collection. The series of hearings began in June after Hunter agreed to plead guilty to federal misdemeanor tax offenses as a part of a deal with prosecutors. Meanwhile, the DOJ has previously denied the whistleblower's allegations. Thank you, Scott. We're going to start off with a Republican narrative provided by Town Hall. While U.S. Attorney Weiss was told he could pursue this case outside of Delaware, what Democrats won't tell you is that the offer came under the condition that he bring other Biden-appointed attorneys to help him lead the investigation. In other words, he was going to have establishment hacks babysit him to make sure he didn't get too close to the truth. The DOJ is rotten to the core and needs new fire alarm mechanisms. And New Republic brings us the Democratic narrative. The latest hearing didn't reveal anything new. As has been the case since this sham began, the whistleblowers made outlandish accusations without providing a shred of evidence. What this case did achieve, however, was proving that the DOJ is actually an example of how an independent justice system is supposed to work. Biden neither removed any of the Trump-appointed prosecutors who were investigating him, nor did his son get away with his crimes. And we're going to wrap it up with a nerd narrative that says there's a 20% chance that Hunter Biden will be indicted before November 5th, 2024. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. A new report from the IMF says Pakistan's economic risks are exceptionally high. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, NDTV.com, Mint, The Times of India, Reuters, and BBC News. A week after approving a $3 billion bailout program, including an immediate dispersal of $1.2 billion to help Pakistan through its economic crisis, the International Monetary Fund, or the IMF, says the country's complex and multifaceted economic challenges pose exceptionally high risks. The IMF released a 120-page report on Pakistan's macroeconomic outlook Tuesday based on the Memorandum of Economic and Fiscal Policies, which is signed by the finance minister and the state bank governor. In it, the lender suggested a, quote, successor agreement may be necessary. The report stressed the importance of steadfast implementation of agreed policies and the continued financial support from external partners to help Pakistan overcome its economic difficulties. The Southeast Asian nation has agreed to not launch any new tax amenities or further exemptions in 2023 to 2024. As part of the agreement, 
the Pakistani government promised to notify the public as soon as electricity rates rise by 5 Pakistani rupees per unit and gas increases by more than 40%. It will also immediately inform the public of any gas tariff adjustments made by AGRA, the state oil and gas authority. The IMF also urged the State Bank of Pakistan, which will hold its next policy meeting on July 31st, to continue tightening its monetary policy. The bank has already hiked the rate by 12.25 percentage points to combat inflation, which is projected to be 21% for fiscal year 2024. After eight months of negotiations, Pakistan secured the IMF deal, which will pay the remaining balance over the next nine months. The country also secured $2 billion from Saudi Arabia and $1 billion last week, as it looks to avoid defaulting on its debt. All right, thanks for that update, Adam. We have a pro-establishment narrative from Human Rights Watch. The IMF is doing all it can to help Pakistan out of its dire economic situation, and now it's up to the Pakistani government to abide by the lender's guidelines to help the country's economy and human rights situation. The IMF has rigorously studied Pakistan's holistic outlook and is implementing the necessary policies that will allow a bailout deal to have long-standing impacts. The IMF's aid to Pakistan is humanitarian as well as economic. And here's an establishment critical narrative provided by Outlook India. While the IMF may act like it's helping Pakistan through its economic hardships, the leader is actually threatening Pakistan like a subservient colony that can't act on its own national interests. Of course, Pakistan greatly benefits from the money it can use to pay off some of its debt, but an international loan is not an excuse to hold a nation of over 200 million people hostage. The IMF should want to help Pakistan without trying to hegemonically control every facet of its economy. New polls give Biden a slight 2024 edge. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Daily Mail, Benzinga, The Gazette, and Reuters. In a hypothetical 2024 presidential election matchup, a Reuters-Ipsis poll gave Joe Biden a 2% lead over Donald Trump, with 37% in favor of the current president, 35% in favor of the former president, and 28% picking neither. The data was taken from the responses of 4,414 U.S. adults between July 11th and 17th, with a margin of error of two points. According to the polling, Trump also holds the lead for the Republican nomination with 47 percent in contrast to Ron DeSantis's 19 percent. Seventy-three percent of independents stated they would be inclined not to vote for a candidate who wished to ban or restrict abortion while both Democrats and Republicans were more optimistic than pessimistic about the economy in the next year. In addition, the latest morning consult poll also gave Biden a 2% lead over Trump by 43% to 41%, a 1% increase from the week prior. The news comes as Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, claimed that Trump was once again being targeted by the U.S. Department of Justice due to his rise in 2024 opinion polling. All right, Scott, Yahoo.com has a Republican narrative for this story. Despite the Biden administration's best efforts alongside some policy success, poor opinion polling will not budge. Thanks to the likes of inflation, stubbornly high prices, family drama, and age, the current president's polling continues to look historically dismal. 
And the Democratic narrative comes from The Guardian. President Biden has a track record of beating Trump, which is vital for the future of America post-2024. Interpreting opinion polling is both tricky and often futile. However, the combination of Bidenomics and his record head-to-head against Trump bodes well for the current president. And the nerds metaculous have an opinion. They think there's a 53% chance that Joe Biden will win the 2024 U.S. presidential election. I'll tell you what, I wouldn't, if I was going against Trump, I wouldn't feel comfortable. Even, I know it's within the margin of error, but I wouldn't even be comfortable within five points. There's that Bradley oh. effect of people. Oh my who, gosh. Uh, and you remember that the Bradley effect thing where people report that they're not going to vote for Trump and then they probably, some percentage of people actually do um, because it's, you know, socially frowned upon. Oh, because their, they're, 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 they're embarrassed to, uh, yeah. to admit to it in public. So, so, and that was possibly a big factor in the polling being kind of off for the 2016 election that more people voted for Trump than said, um, of course, polling is literally an inexact science. That's the whole point. Yeah, I didn't uh, get, did did they they poll you? Did you get polled? An Israeli airstrike injures two Syrian soldiers. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC News. Al Jazeera, Associated Press, The New Arab, and PBS NewsHour. According to Syrian state media, Israeli airstrikes hit Syria's capital Damascus on Wednesday, injuring two Syrian soldiers before Syria's air defenses shot down most missiles. The airstrikes reportedly targeted military positions near the airport in Dima, the Beirut-Damascus highway where elite Syrian army personnel are stationed and warehouses of the Lebanese militant group Hezbollah. According to the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, Wednesday's strikes marked Israel's 20th strike in Syria so far in 2023. Over the past decade, Israel has carried out hundreds of airstrikes on Syria, mostly targeting government-controlled territories, international airports in Damascus and Aleppo, and Iranian-backed forces. Israel rarely comments on its attacks in Syria, but it is concerned about Iran potentially expanding its footprint in its Arab neighbor. We've got an establishment critical narrative from Foreign Affairs. Israel has been conducting airstrikes against suspected Iranian weapons transfers and personnel and its proxies in Syria for almost a decade. Though the strikes are part of a low-intensity conflict to slow Iran's growing entrenchment in Syria, The West has seemingly dropped its previous plan of diplomacy to allow Israel and other allies to use military force instead to settle its grievances with Tehran. This risky strategy underestimates the magnitude and repercussions of a military escalation. And AlMonitor.com has a pro-establishment narrative. Syria is a conflict zone with many actors, all of which can cause this shadow war to go hot. Meanwhile, Iran, with its coordinated effort with Russia, which controls much of the Syrian airspace, risks pushing it over the edge. Israel has been clear that it will not permit Iran to freely move weapons and fighters through Syria if such activities threaten Israeli security, and it's justified to target Iranian assets in any of the countries into which Tehran has dug its tentacles. And we have yet another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This time their community predicts there's a 50% chance that the U.S. will give at least $2.97 billion in aid to Israel in 2030. Man, I have not followed any of this story. Do you know any of this? 
Um, no, I, I Benjamin Netanyahu was on Lex Friedman the other day, and I listened yeah. to that, but he was specifically, and they even they even talked about how they were not going to be talking about this. Yeah, I was going to say this doesn't seem yeah. like something he would chat about in an interview. But but, but <laughs> I respect that they mentioned that we're just not. They didn't ignore it. They just said this is not something we can talk about, which is better than acting like it's not happening or like nothing's wrong. So that they're was like, interesting. They're like, we don't think you're going to tell us the right answer for this, so we're not even going to ask you about it. And news from the Mitten State as 16 are charged in alleged Trump elector schemes. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, CNN, Guardian, CNBC, and the New York Times. Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel has charged 16 individuals for their part in an alleged plot to submit fraudulent electoral votes in the 2020 election, which purported that former President Donald Trump had won the state. They're the first to face charges for fake elector plots. The individuals are charged with eight felony counts each, which include two counts of forgery, two counts of election law forgery, one count of publishing a counterfeit record, and several charges of conspiracy. The accused include current and former state GOP officials and a sitting mayor. According to Nessel, the individuals convened on December 14, 2020 to sign multiple certificates proclaiming Trump to be the winner of Michigan. The fraudulent votes were then transmitted to the National Archives in Washington, D.C., Fraudulent electors in several states allegedly attempted to submit forged electoral votes to pressure then-Vice President Mike Pence to overturn the results of the election. Nessel says the accused committed an illegal act when they purported to the duly elected and qualified electors of Michigan, while the defendants have in turn accused her of pursuing politically motivated charges. Similar state and federal investigations are ongoing in Georgia and Arizona. Alleged efforts to alter the outcome of the 2020 election are being investigated by the U.S. Department of Justice Special Counsel Jack Smith, who is actively investigating Trump and the fake elector plots. Thanks for the facts, Scott. We're going to start our first spin with a Democratic narrative provided by New York Times. The legal charges against the fake electors are measured and airtight and go to show that attempts to interfere with the Democratic process will not be taken lightly. All of those charged were fully aware that they were doing something illegal, and the charges now open the door for indictments in other states. The charges targeting the small fish will clear the way for charges against high-level Trump allies, or even the former president himself. The legal blowback from Trump's scheme is only just beginning. And the pro-Trump narrative comes from the Washington Examiner. No one can talk about conspiracies involving the 2020 election without talking about the real attempts to undermine the Trump campaign through media and political interference, collusion between social media platforms, and the intelligence community buried the damning Hunter Biden laptop story and impeded investigations, potentially swinging the election. Democrat-led plots had a real impact on the outcome of the election. And there's a nerd narrative that says there's a 20% chance a state will officially submit results to the Electoral College that are different from the projected winner of that state in the 2024 presidential election. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Hollywood strikers accuse NBC Universal of blocking the picket area. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, The Hollywood Reporter, and LA Times. 
On Tuesday, Hollywood's Writers Guild of America, or the WGA, which alongside the SAG-AFTRA union, is striking for better pay and to curb the use of artificial intelligence, filed a grievance with the U.S. National Labor Relations Board against NBC Universal for allegedly blocking a picket area. The WGA says NBC Universal endangered its members by obstructing the public sidewalk immediately abutting the studio during an ongoing construction project. In its own filing, SAG alleged that its members had been forced to picket at the unsafe crowded location, exacerbating the dire public safety situation to interfere with striking members' rights to engage in the protected, concerted activity of picketing. NBC Universal said it supports the union's rights to demonstrate safely and that it understood the timing of its multi-year construction project had created challenges for demonstrators, adding that it was working with public agencies to increase access. Some writers have also complained about NBC Universal's decision to trim trees that had provided shade for demonstrators. Los Angeles City Controller Kenneth Mejia has said the issue would be investigated. The Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, which has been in labor talks with WGA since March 20th, said they have pruned these trees annually at this time of year to ensure that the canopies are light ahead of the high wind season. It also claims WGA is at fault for walking away from negotiations. All right, Narrative A on this labor story comes from The Wrap. This strike is bigger than just the TV and movie industry as it's brought people together from all walks of the entertainment world. While movie and TV strikers are mostly showing up in front of the major production studios, SAG-AFTRA has specifically also barred its members from attending San Diego's Comic-Con event. Writers and actors keep the entirety of Hollywood running smoothly, from blockbuster films to promoting smaller comics, and this strike proves that. And CNBC has a narrative B. These writers may have picked a fight they cannot win. The streaming boom is over, and the once cash-flush platforms are feeling the pinch. Platforms are in no rush to spend money or greenlight another prestige show as investors bear down on them to turn a profit. Everyone in the industry is grappling with this slowdown, and writers shouldn't receive special treatment. And the Times Republican brings us Narrative C. While the WGA SAG strike is a historic moment for the industry and must continue, they should be cautious not to let certain high-profile actors turn it into a political stunt. Actress Susan Sarandon, for example, has a history of staining the industry through her controversial politics. If actors like her are able to hijack the movement, it will allow the industry to paint it as a wacky group of grifters using the hard work of writers to push their own agenda. Thousands of writers urge AI not to use their work without permission. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, The Bookseller, Hype Beast, Business Insider, and CNN. Thousands of writers, including author Margaret Atwood, Jonathan Franzine, James Patterson, Susan Collins, and Viet Thanh Nguyen, have signed a letter calling on AI companies to stop using their copyrighted work without permission. The letter was addressed to the CEOs of OpenAI, Meta, Microsoft, Alphabet, IBM, and Stability AI. The more than 8,000 authors are also requesting payment for past and ongoing use of their works when featured in generative AI programs and in AI output 
regardless of whether it breaks the law. The letter wrote that millions of copyrighted books, articles, essays, and poetry provide the, quote, food for AI systems, endless meals for which there has been no bill, and argues that AI threatens the industry by flooding the market for mediocre machine-written books, stories, and journalism based on our work. Authorized by the Authors Guild, the largest professional writers organization in the U.S., the signatories claim that they should receive a cut of the billions of dollars AI companies spend developing the technology that scrapes vast amounts of data from the Internet to mimic human speech. This comes as, according to the Authors Guild, writers have seen a 40% drop in earnings in the past decade with full-time writers' median income in 2022 being just $23,330. There are also two ongoing lawsuits against OpenAI, accusing it of copyright infringement. Meanwhile, OpenAI CEO Sam Altman announced in May that the company is working on new models that respect copyright and compensate creators if their content is used. All right, Silicon Angle brings us Narrative A. While current copyright laws may not cover this novel phenomenon, these billion-dollar AI companies still have a moral duty to share any profits that are made off the backs of hardworking artists. Writers, authors, and musicians are facing a dire economic outlook as their industries are rapidly outpaced by technological innovation. Creative professions will always be paramount to a strong society, and it's up to the tech giants in charge to even the playing field. And Copyright Alliance is going to follow that up with a narrative B. The question surrounding AI development with copyrighted materials is more complicated than it seems. While companies can't make blanket fair use claims for any and all copyrighted work, they certainly can make a case if their AI training is for nonprofit or educational purposes. Courts can also, as has happened in the past, rule in favor of AI companies if their goal is not to reproduce copyrighted work for consumption, but rather turn it into something new. Future court cases will have to determine the legal framework of this issue. I was reading some anecdotal reports. People are complaining that these AI, uh, generative AI prompts are giving, are giving worse answers. And uh, as time has gone on, even though the technology is getting better, and one of the theories is that as more of the internet is being generated by AI, the data that the AIs are scraping are AI-generated answers themselves. So it's just going to be like a, a race to the bottom. They're going to keep you know, making clones of information over and over again. It's kind of like the, uh, the snake eating its tail metaphor. Kind, kind of. Or uh, Multiplicity, starring Michael Keaton. An open letter claims AI is not a threat to humanity. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, UK Tech News, and BCS. An open letter signed by over 1,300 experts in artificial intelligence says that AI is a force for good and not a threat to humanity. The letter was released by the BCS, the Chartered Institute for IT, a UK-based technology society. Signatories include University of Oxford professor Luciano Floridi, Stemet CEO Dr. Anne-Maria Mafadon, and entrepreneur Sir Ken Olisa, among other figures in technology and academia. 
BCS CEO Rashik Parmar says that the signatories of the letter believe AI will be a trusted co-pilot in learning, work, healthcare, entertainment. The letter states that ultimately AI will not become an existential threat to humanity. The letter responds to an open letter published earlier this year that called for a pause in AI development to help mitigate risks, which was signed by industry leaders including Elon Musk. The BCS argues that such a halt would play into the hands of bad actors and fail to address the current risks of AI. In statements to the media, signatories of the letter expressed optimism that AI will have a positive impact on the world, providing examples from fields such as medicine and agriculture. The letter also encourages the UK to take an active role in global AI regulation and collaboration. Thank you, Scott. We've got a Narrative A spin provided by The Guardian. There's good reason to be hopeful about the future of AI, and a better world is within our reach with careful management of the technology. By focusing less on apocalyptic predictions and more on tangible harms and benefits, we can fully unleash the power of AI to tackle some of our most serious problems in the scientific and human realms. We must remain level-headed and work to ensure AI is used for good. Reuters brings us Narrative B. Anyone who is blasé about the risk AI poses to humanity hasn't been paying close enough attention. AI has been developing at a breakneck pace and could outsmart humanity before too long. It's imperative that we take the existential risk that AI poses seriously, as an arms race between developers could see everything from fake news to cybercrime explode thanks to the sophisticated tech. We cannot afford to be reckless in this endeavor. And for the first time, we have a techno-skeptic section provided by the Globe and Mail. The doomsayers and optimists are two sides of the same coin, feeding into the unfounded hype around AI systems that has been uncritically reported by the media. The technology behind AI isn't fundamentally new, and humans are wrongly ascribing human traits to clever programs, easily duping us. AI will not be the end of the world, and it won't be a gold rush for anyone but those who get the public to buy into the hype. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, July 20th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all the articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org, or download the Improve the News app from the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Scott Wallace, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Thank you.